Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast which gives new life to old books. Today, you find us on Marylebone High Street in London, sometime in the mid-1960s. A tall, somewhat worried-looking woman emerges from Unwinds, clutching a large bottle wrapped in tissue paper. She stares idly into shop windows as she passes, her steps quickening as the evening darkens. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, where people crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today we are joined by two returning guests. Welcome back, Linda Grant and Lucy Scholes. Thank you for having us. Linda, say hello. Oh, hi. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you're watching telly, Linda. Yeah, it sort of is. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Anyway, welcome back. Now, Linda Grant first joined us on Batlist on our second ever episode which was about Jean Reese's Good Morning Midnight. And so we owe you a huge debt of thanks, Linda, for starting this uh, enterprise so stylishly. That's still one of the most popular episodes of Batlisted, which is wonderful for us and wonderful for um, dear Miss Reese. And I, we can only apologise profusely that it's taken eight years for us to bring you back. So, so <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Linda is the author of nine novels and four works of nonfiction. She's won the Orange Prize for Fiction, the South Bankshire Award, the Wingate Prize, and been shortlisted for the Booker Prize for Fiction and this year's George Orwell Prize. Her latest novel, The Story of the Forest, was published in May and moved Nigella Lawson to write, I'm in awe, I'm charmed, and I want to press a copy on everyone I know. Uh, Linda, were you expecting Nigella <laughs> to say that, or was that a, a delightful surprise? Well, she's a good woman, let's put it that way. 
I'm very grateful to her. She asked for a signed copy as well. That's amazing. Ooh, after that's she'd good. read it. Oh, um, well, listen, thank you so much for coming back. We're so pleased to it's have you It's a pleasure. Back. And also, we're also delighted to welcome back for what is apparently her fifth appearance on Backlisters, friend of the show, Lucy Scholes. Hello, Lucy. Hi. It's very nice Hi, to be back yeah. again. Lovely she to have previously you. joined us on episodes dedicated to Barbara Cummings, Anita Bruckner. Let's say it again. You were on the Anita Bruckner episode, the legendary <laughs> Bruckner episode. I mean, you know, that's my claim to fame for above all else in my life. <laughs> I yeah. made it onto the backlist Bruckner episode. You did, episode. on the Bruckner episode, I know. Um, Penelope Fitzgerald <laughs> and Penelope Mortimer, all the Penelopes. And um, uh, what we like to think of as the core backlisted backlist. She is senior editor at McNally Editions, a series of paperbacks devoted to hidden gems, including the Penelope Mortimer title you talked about on this, right? Yes, and I owe you both a debt of gratitude because I hadn't read that book for quite a while. And then I just started working for McNally when I came on the show to do the Mortimer episode. And it was rereading it, listening to you guys talk about it, you know, enjoying it again. I thought this needs to be back in print. So, yeah, we bought it back in America, which is great. Is that the first time it had actually been published in America? No, it was originally published um, with the title Cave of Ice. Very different to Daddy's Gone Hunting. <laughs> so. As opposed to Daddy's Gone Hunting, which yes. was the original UK title, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we bought it back with Daddy's Gone Hunting, but it was the first time it had been reprinted. Wow. Uh, yeah, so thank you very much, both of you, all of oh, you. Our pleasure. Lucy hosts Our Shelves, a podcast from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago, and wrote Recovered, a column for the Paris Review, about out-of-print and forgotten books that shouldn't be. And one thing we should say about today's choice of book is it has never been out of print since it first appeared in 1965. John, what is the book we are discussing today? Uh -huh. The book we're discussing is uh, The Millstone, uh, which is the third novel by Margaret Drabble. As you say, first published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in 1965 and as a Penguin paperback in 1968 adapted for the screen by Waris Hussain in 1969 with the screenplay by Margaret Drabble as A Touch of Love, starring Sandy Dennis and a young Ian McKellen. We'll be talking about that later. So the story of the novel is a first-person narrative of uh, that of Rosamund Stacey, Cambridge graduate in her mid-twenties, who is writing a thesis on Elizabethan poetry and living rent-free in her parents' large Marylebone flat. She's in half-hearted relationships with two very different men, novelist Joe Hurt and accountant Roger Anderson. She becomes pregnant by a third, George Matthews, an apparently gay BBC radio announcer after a rather awkward one-night stand. But she decides to have the baby, breaks it off with her two boyfriends and forges her own path forwards. At the heart of the novel is an exploration of Rosamond's complex emotional reaction to pregnancy, childbirth and the postnatal illness of her child. Drabble said herself the novel aimed to show how maternity changes you into something fiercer than you were before. Often hailed as a feminist classic, the writer Tessa Hadley goes further, claiming on the 50th anniversary of its publication that The Millstone was the seminal 1960s feminist novel that Doris Lessing's Golden Notebook is always supposed to be. Anyway, in its sensitive and original treatment of status anxiety, sexual mores, attitudes to raising children, and what we now call work-life balance, the millstone certainly feels both absolutely of its time, but also oddly prophetic. Also, before we get on to the main discussion, I'm going to throw a question out to the panel. The millstone is a historic 
novel. The publication of Millstone by Margaret Drabble is a historic novel for a specific technical reason. Do any of you know what it is? No. <laughs> Do you speak for everyone, Linda? I think it would be fair to say. Well, you mean the history of like printing or um, technical? Yes, yes. Uh, and that's my clue. In the history <laughs> of printing, The Millstone by Margaret Drabble is a historic publication. What is it? Is it to do with it being in paperback? No, good guess, but that's not correct. Right, okay. Some kind of new lithographic printing process that had never been mm, You're getting close. I didn't know I was supposed to come on here with a history of printing <laughs> as well at my fingertips. <laughs> well, you've been Sorry. on before, Lucy. You've been on before. <laughs> Go on, Andy. Put us out of our misery. It's the first novel in the history of British publishing to be set on a computer. Uh, uh, uh. In 1965. Yep, in 1965. And I discovered uh, that fact um, when I was searching the Times archive. And there's a Times story from 1965 which says, in the future, it is believed there will be such a thing as an electronic book. (laughs) 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 And, And within that story, it says already... A new novel by, published by Weidenfeld, Margaret Drabble's <sighs> The Millstone, is the first novel ever to have been set on a computer. Amazing. There you Amazing. go. And you're surprised that none of us got that. Yeah. <laughs> that is surprising, given that it was mid-60s. But it's obviously George Weidenfeld was always a man at the cutting edge of, uh, of innovation in publishing. Quite so, quite so. So um, let's kick off our discussion in the usual place. Linda, when did you first encounter The Millstone? When did you first read this novel? I, I would have encountered it as soon as it came out in paperback. Uh, you said it came out in paperback in 68, did you say? Yeah. yeah. In that yeah, case, absolutely. I was 17. Um, I wouldn't have read it in hardback. I would have read it in paperback. I couldn't afford hardbacks. I was a schoolgirl at the time, a uh, schoolgirl in Liverpool, and it was the book that everybody was talking about and everybody was reading. It was being sold in a way as a story of the sexual revolution and it being a very racy book and being quite shocking. The thing about Rosamond is that in the entire sequence of the novel, she only has sex once. (laughs) Um, She's a virgin. She has sex once, gets pregnant and doesn't see the guy again for several years and she doesn't have sex before or afterwards. So it's not really so much (laughs) about sex. Um, but it was very <laughs> shocking that an educated, intelligent woman chooses to have a baby on her own. Um, she doesn't choose to keep it because abortion was illegal. Yeah. She chooses not to have it adopted. Yeah. But for me, reading it in provincial Liverpool, it there we are in the west end of London, Marylebone High Street, an apartment in which a woman has gone out to buy a bottle of gin so she could try the old bottle of gin in the bathtub routine, mm-hmm. try and have an abortion that way. So what happens is there's a knock on her door and a bunch of her friends, who all seem to be novelists and poets, arrive and ask her if she wants to go and see the new Fabini <laughs> film. She says no, they hang around, they drink the gin, and by the time she goes to pour the bath, the water's cold. (laughs) And to me, as a 17-year-old, it was like, this is miraculous. (laughs) This is the world I want to live in. I want to be with these people. I want to know people who are writing their first novel. 
been published as novelists. It was absolutely incredible. So that was the sort of the opening thrust of it for me reading it at that time. Lucy, Mm. now when did you first read Margaret Drabble? I'm rather embarrassed to say I came to her quite late. I think the first Margaret Drabble novel I ever read was um, one of her much more recent books, The Dark Flood Rises, I think, which was published um, in 2016, and I reviewed at the time. It? Is that and her I did most in, recent novel? It is, um, isn't it? I think it might yeah, be, yes. Be, yeah, it is. And yeah. I, I liked it. Yeah, that's right, Canongate. I liked it, but I didn't love it, let's put it that mm-hmm. way. And it's about people of her age. It's about older people, you know, coming towards the end of their life and I think maybe it sort of didn't ring too many bells with me and then really randomly because this is such an odd book for her to have recommended but it was actually the novelist Nell Zink who first recommended Margaret <laughs> Drabble to me and I was right. looking I was trying to find the email that I thought she'd written me about it and I was I couldn't find it today so I think it might have been in person we were chatting about it and she had read The Waterfall one of the early novels yeah and said it was really wonderful and I should look at it and I I hadn't looked and I sort of knew I knew of the millstone I knew there was something there that I probably should read at some point so I picked up The Waterfall read it loved it and in that way that I tend to do because I do like to sort of binge authors and binge books I then just started at the beginning and I read through all her early novels I think this was in mm. this was summer 2019 um, mm. and ended up writing about the Ice Age um, for my Paris Review column, because at that point, that it was actually out of right. print in America. And there were a kind of collection of them. Obviously, the Millstone wasn't. But I was really surprised at these brilliant, absolutely brilliant novels. I mean, they, you know, they're very off their yeah. period in so many ways, but also they're not. They totally spoke to me as a, um, you know, still. And I couldn't believe that people weren't talking about them and sort of reading them, and there weren't these editions that are always available. Well, we should we should say two things. You know, first of all, happily, Margaret Drabble is still with us um, in her early eighties, um, and also she was very famous um, for a while in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies. And we have a clip here of the beginning of a film that was made in collaboration with her by the film director Richard Marcon from nineteen sixty eight who made this in 1968 and 15 years later directed Return of the Jedi. There's another, there's another tiny fact for you. <laughs> and you can see where it all began in this film. Yeah, this, when you hear this clip, you'll see if only Ewoks ran onto the set at this, at this point. Anyway, this is how they kick off this documentary about the young writer Margaret Drabble. She is being interviewed and this will place... Linda, I would like you to comment on this once we hear it about what it meant to be a female, young female novelist in the late 1960s. Margaret Drabble is a novelist. She's also married and the mother of three children. None of this is particularly extraordinary, but Margaret Drabble is 28. She's written four novels and a book about Wordsworth and is now completing her fifth novel. Isn't it hard, in fact, for you to live a life like that? I imagine most married women make a choice between a career of some sort and their home. Why have you done both? Why are you both the mother of three children, a wife, and a very busy professional novelist? I don't know, because in a sense I can't do without any of them. I, I didn't think when I was younger that I would want to have children, but having had one, I knew that this, I wanted them very much, and this was a very important and sort of unavoidable experience, significant in a way that um, nothing else had been. And yet I couldn't 
because I'd got children, spend my life wheeling pushchairs around the park. I had to do something else as well. So in a, in a sense, I've always felt that there was no choice for me, that I simply had to do both. And I've never decided between them. My life is a continual and absolutely exhausting compromise. I'm always rushing from one to the other and never knowing, knowing where I ought to be and feeling totally guilty about every part of my life. And yet there's none of it that I, you can't give up children. They exist. You can't possibly say, I'm not going to be a mother to these children. And so really, it's a question of me worrying about what hours I spend doing what. In other words, you try and do both exceedingly well. I try and do everything well, and I'm always failing. There's nothing I dislike more than failing for sort of silly practical reasons like being unpunctual because a child was crying or leaving a child crying because I've got to get to a place on time. And this kind of thing is always happening to me. I feel terrible about it, but I, there's nothing I can do about it. I ought to be able to give up one, give up, I suppose, my professional life, but I can't do it, and I know I'm not going to. I mean, goodness me, right? That speaks to the to the dilemma at the heart of the millstone, but also reminds us what a challenge it was to, in theory, have it all. You can't possibly do both, right? Um, and, and stop by the fact that she had she got married, I think, not long after leaving university, and she had three children before before she was thirty, I think. So she had a very conventional trajectory, which she was always in the process of trying to undermine. And I think there's a tremendous level of self-awareness and determination there that you see in her characters as well. And she says, I can't give it up. I know myself too well. Um, but it's obvious that, you know, it's laughable to think that anybody would have those expectations of a female novelist today. Um, but I wonder in the past how many young women writers there were who had three children. So I think it was an incredible achievement on her part to have risen so fast, so far in a few years. I mean, it's an incredibly intense period of time, which yeah. she accomplished an enormous amount. Four novels and a book on Wordsworth um, and three children by yeah. the age of 28. I mean, as he says at the yeah. beginning, not terribly, not, something, not terribly remarkable. You say, it's unbelievably <laughs> remarkable, you fool. <laughs> you try it. Yeah. Lucy, how did you, when you started reading Margaret Drabble then, like as you were talking about, did you um, appreciate her achievement as a young writer? Oh, yes, I think very much. As much as a young woman in that era? I think so, because the more I found out about, I mean, I sort of, you know, obviously I knew a little bit about her, but the more I looked into it and realised that she was writing these novels when she was incredibly young. And I think that wonderful, weird documentary, I remember watching that, I think, around about that time when I was discovering her work and being struck by the fact that she was clearly this incredibly intelligent woman who obviously, like she said, unapologetically, she can't give up working, but she also wants to have children and why shouldn't she and why you know why can't she make it work and I think those the early novels in particular are all very I don't necessarily want to say autobiographical but she clearly drew on her own life and her own experiences but they are right I mean I was going this is one of the things I wanted to ask all of you is she an autobiographical writer or not I think she's writing about the experiences of educated women mm. And educated sounds a bit snobbish, but it was by no means obvious that intelligent young women would go to university in the 50s or 60s. Right. So she's educated. She's 
hyper-intelligent. She has this incredible powers of concentration, I think. Mm. She's erudite. Um, and she came and talked to my university English department when I was, it must have been in the early 70s, and she was incredibly glamorous and beautiful as well. I think she had started <laughs> out in, in acting yeah, at university and then gravitated into writing. So she she sort of had it all, really. Um, in, in, that's a horrible expression, <laughs> but she she was very very famous in the sixties and seventies, and she stayed with me. I've I've travelled along the whole of my life mm. up to that last book. She's mm. about ten years older than me. That last book, which is writing about a number of people who've reached the terminus old age, I think that is her last and final book. So she's always been there exploring the next big thing. There was a novel that I think is out still out of print called The Middle Way or The Middle Years. Middle years, yeah. Which I haven't read for a very long time because I haven't been able to find a copy about women who are divorced and living on their own with, with children who, who have grown up taking in lodges and trying to kind of navigate the world of middle age. So she's yeah. she's gone yeah. from exciting me as a teenager into thinking I could be this fabulous woman um, who is so talented and so beautiful and so brave to being the real chronicler of women's lives across the decades. Yes, 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 sure. And you also use the phrase the next big thing there, the title of a wonderful novel by um, Anita Brookman about, <laughs> about that very yeah. thing, the, the next big thing, yes. So the, I think the, the other thing about her is she came from the north. Yeah. I mean, that's not kind of apparent from that, you know, from that yeah. speech. She was educated at the Mount School in York, although she was from Sheffield, but she was northern, and that's very important to her writing. Um, my favourite novel of hers, well, semi-favourite, is Jerusalem the Golden, about a young northern working-class student who comes down to London, falls in with some very, very glamorous older people who are, I believe, the Mortimers, John and Penelope Mortimer, <laughs> and falls into oh, their the world. The interconnectedness <laughs> of all things, Lucy Scholes. I know, Look at that. I know. That is a wonderful... No I think that's one of my favourites of her early ones, yeah. for sure. So she was an interloper. She was not somebody who grew up in the home counties and fell into this. She fought for it. John, of Margaret Drabble's, it's just been mentioned, so this is easy. Of Margaret Drabble's 20 novels, which is the only one, the title of which, does not begin with either the definite or indefinite article? Um, well, Jerusalem the Golden is the obvious one. Isn't it's it? the yes, right obviously. answer, yes, Jerusalem the Golden. <laughs> All the rest of her novels begin with the or a. I was going to say, I can't think of, uh, um, uh, very few of them begin with that. I, I remember, I think her first one is called A Summer Birdcage, isn't it? And that was. It is, it is yeah. yeah. And then The Garrick Year. Yes, A Natural Curiosity, which I noticed I have on my shelf at home as well, um, when I was thinking about. Um, I'm really interested, Linda, in you know how the, this book, The Millstone, felt like it to you that it was a, a kind of glamorous world the thing that really struck me reading it and I hadn't read it before so it was really interesting going back to it that there is almost a kind of that Rosamond has this uh, as a narrative voice it's much more interesting than I was expecting much more kind of um slightly kind of Bartleby the Scrivener kind of you know I you know she's 
weirdly resistant and original in the way that she navigates her way through all of this life. Um, you know, there's a sort of almost a, a kind of 50s existentialist. She's she's She doesn't know why she worries so much. She's continually assailed by feelings of not fitting in. But at the same time, I love the way she's, she, she kind of hates her friends but loves her friends. When you think about Margaret Drabble, you think about her as being a chronicler of, of, of women's experience through the last 40, 50 years. But this seems to be much more interesting in its, in its first-person narrative than I was expecting to be. To, to, and I, I really, really responded to it. I found it, uh, and maybe that's one of the reasons we'll come on to when we talk about the film, the film perhaps didn't succeed quite as well because you don't have that remarkable voice in your head. Hey. Well, um, John, you were just talking about the characters being shy. It's not just sort of diffident and shy. And here's a clip of um, Margaret Drabble from about 2015, I think this is, talking to the World Book Club on the World Service about the Millstone. And um, she's just been asked about the character of George. Did George have some kind of a secret that he wasn't letting on to the reader? I think he was just very shy. I think that in this novel you have a not impossible situation where two very shy people meet one another and would like to get further together but don't manage it. I mean, I think that's not impossible as a situation. I mean, I look back on my life where I know people have been making an overture to me or wanted to be friends and I just haven't responded. And I think George is just one of those. He feels that he's he's a bit of a loner. And I never really knew what George was up to. I mean, he remained a mysterious <laughs> figure to me as a, as a novelist. He was obviously out clubbing, isn't he? <laughs> there weren't clubs like that in those days. I don't think he was clubbing. Do you think he was? It was so nice if he had been, but I really don't think he was. <laughs> so that idea, Lucy, this appears to be... One of the things I think about The Millstone is so interesting. It appears to be a very decorous, polite novel right? Because it has a kind of elegance and formalism to it. It's not stylistically experimental. And yet it's talking about issues which in 1965 are illegal, you know, abortion and George, who it is strongly implied is bisexual. How does she get away with that? Is she some, is she being terribly daring or is she protected by a kind of Cambridge bubble? God, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I think maybe because it's just the way she deals with it, for me at least, it feels like it feels so true to life. It's just real life. She's kind of getting on with these things might have been illegal or not done, but that doesn't mean people weren't getting abortions or being gay, right? So it's just part and parcel Mm -hmm. of life. And I think the thing that I maybe take away from what she was saying there and a little bit even in that from the documentary we played the clip from earlier is I'm really fascinated in this idea that she articulates that Rosamond can't be anything that she isn't. I think it's it's in the book and it's sort of, and she talks about it herself, Drabble talks about herself through her own life. She's very interested in people who are sort of constrained by their own fate. And she makes a kind of comment in that documentary, I think, uh, about her characters when somebody asks her, do you kind of, do you think you can you do certain things to your characters? And she says, well, no, because they are confined by the way their nature, they're confined by what they do. And I just sort of have to go along with it to a certain extent. And I think that to me, 
that's what I see in the novel. This is maybe a very roundabout way of answering that question. But what I see are these characters. George can't be what he isn't. You know, Rosamond can't be mm. who she isn't. So they can't bridge that divide between them. They can't be anything but these quite shy characters with each other mm. who've had this sexual encounter, which, you know, neither of them is even quite sure what that sexual encounter I means. Rosamond isn't quite sure what that sexual encounter means. She doesn't necessarily want George to come back and ask her to marry him. There's that wonderful bit at the end where he makes a comment about, she didn't really want a husband anyway. You know, she wouldn't do it like that. And I think these these characters are, they're trapped in their sort of their own identities in the way that we all are in real life, right? Yes. The scenes with George are generally rendered in dialogue and the dialogue yeah. is absolutely brilliant because it's full of sort of subtle silences and nuances and things that are not quite expressed. I was very interested to hear her say she doesn't know what George is up to because mm. the reader doesn't know either. We know what Rosalind's up to. After they have sex this one time, he says, well, I ought to go. And she says, I wanted to say don't go, but I couldn't. I didn't think it was a fear of being impolite or not wanted or being rejected. So she can't say anything. And you've no idea whether he is just trying to get out of there after his, what this, you know, this one incident, or if he would like to stay. You've no idea. And there's this, this is a remarkable bit when um, her parents write to say they're not coming back from Africa, yeah. they're going <laughs> on to India. <laughs> and there is this impl very, very strong implication that um, they know that she has, has, has had a baby and they're staying out of the way to give her some space. But it's not stated because they don't say what they mean either. So it's full of people not saying what they mean, which I think is very English and very kind of 50s, 60s as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes, I strongly, I strongly agree with you. But that's also to do with class, don't you think, as well? Like there's a sense yeah. of, you know, she and, it, and that's talked about a lot in the book, that she is of a different class to a lot of the other mothers-to-be yeah. that she meets. There's that brilliant passage uh, near the beginning of the novel where she, in the conversation she has with George, where she talks about her parents and says, they have to punish themselves, you see. They can't just let things get comfortable. All this going to Africa and so on, other people don't do it. Other people just say they ought to do it. But my parents, they really go. It was the same with the way they brought us up. They were quite absurd, the way they stuck to their principles, never asking us where we'd been when we got back at three in the morning, sending us to state schools, having everything done on the national health, letting us pick up horrible Cockney accents, making the char lady sit down and dine with us, introducing her to visitors, all that kind of nonsense. My God, they made themselves suffer. And yet at the same time, they were so nice, so kind, so gentle. And people aren't nice and kind and gentle. They just aren't. The char lady went off with all the silver cutlery in the end, and she despised them. I could see her despising them, and she knew they wouldn't take any steps. And the awful thing is, they weren't even shocked when she did it. They had seen it coming, they said. And my brother went and married a ghastly girl whose father was a colonel, and now he lives in Dorking and spends all his time having absolutely worthless people to dinner and playing bridge. My sister still tries, but she married a scientist and they live on the top of a hill in the middle of the country on a housing estate near an atomic station. And last time I went, she was stopping the kids from playing with the kids next door because they taught them to say silly bugger. It's been a disastrous experiment in education. And that's all one can call it. I just think that sense of even in the middle of the 60s, she's incredibly clear-sighted about stuff that, that isn't being resolved. And I know, I mean, I think it was Tessa Hadley who said, people don't behave like their parents anymore. 
But I think a lot of that sort of middle class confusion about how to deal with with people from other backgrounds feels absolutely contemporary. One of the things about the parents in this novel is their Fabians. As their daughter complains, they stick to their principles. And yet at the same time, she can afford to live in a flat in Marylebone that they pay for. There's also an incredible scene where she's separated from her baby in an NHS hospital. She screams in order to get the baby back, uh, and no one will let her see the baby until the specialist arrived, who it turns out is a friend of her father's. So (laughs) this idea that it's uh, a class study which is simultaneously able to uh, accommodate the principle of the thing and the reality of the thing. You know, she's in a privileged position, and her mistrust of the National Health Service at the same time, right? We're used to thinking of the NHS as being this service for the people of which we refer to as our NHS, of which we're terribly proud, and it's a very live debate at the moment. But you can see if you go back 60 years, it's perceived as a, I don't know, an imposition. Do you think it is mistrust, though? I think it's to do with women's experience of the NHS because women's experience of hospitals is far greater than it's, it takes up more of women's lives. And there's no question that the NHS used to be organized in such a way that it made life very, very difficult and it treated women as, as sort of objects, really. Um, I mean, it's, it's very shocking. It's really, really shocking when her baby has gone into hospital for a heart operation and she's told she can't see her for yeah. at least two weeks, weeks. because mm. it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient for the staff. And, you know, that, that idea now is, is grotesque. I mean, nobody, you, nobody will believe it. But yeah. that's where Rosamond comes into her own, by just screaming. She screams the place down and doesn't stop until they let her see her baby. And that's where Rosamond fires up and becomes more than her nature, but she's part, it is, I suppose it is part of her nature. But just the thing about class, rereading it this week, I was really struck by how uncomfortable um, her descriptions of the women that she is in the hospital with, in the waiting room with, uh, is. And the class, the class sort of snobbery really kind of tells because she feels Absolutely. herself to be very different. But at the same time, she understands she is now down amongst the women. It's also reinforced in the film adaptation of Touch yes, of Love with the script really by Drabble, where she can't go to a waiting room without sitting next to uh, a, a, an overweight woman or an immigrant. Mm. All yeah. those, those are all framed as this, this, and yet knowingly, I think, this poor middle-class girl is having to slum it to some extent. Um, and yet, at the same time, the care that she receives within that system is an education to her, right, Lucy? Yeah. She's like, this is a, a, a fascinating example of a, a type of education, a character undergoing an education. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I maybe read it slightly differently to some of you. I mean, I, I think second time round reading it for this podcast, I was really struck about how much, to me, this book was about the NHS which I think I hadn't thought so much first time round. I'd been much more focused on Rosalind and her experience. And I was thinking this time round, I kept thinking this is a portrait of the NHS and it's kind of, it's good sides, it's bad sides, everything. Mm, I mean, I think, yeah, I yeah. don't know. I feel like she is, 
I don't know if it's necessarily the fact that she's using the NHS, but the fact that she has been having the bit, she makes a lot of points. Doesn't she mention the fact that she hasn't been ill? She's not someone yes, who's ever she's ill. And I think that's really interesting because, so she's saying that when she has to find a doctor, she needs to find a doctor because now she's pregnant. She doesn't even know where to start looking because yeah. she hasn't been ill yeah, since yeah. she was a child. And I think that is it. I don't, I, I mean, you might disagree with me, but I don't get the sense that she's particularly concerned about using the NHS. I think she's happy it's there and she'll use it. But she feels very at sea in that world because it's yes. not somewhere she's had to Agreed. be before. And Agreed. suddenly she is this very, and also, I mean, this is an obvious thing to say, but this is a young girl whose entire life is the life of the mind, right? And now mm. she's pregnant. And for the first time, she has to really get to grips with herself as a body and as a female body well, in the world that's going to yeah. be prodded and poked and by all these male doctors. You know, she's never going to see women. Well, we have a clip here from the film. It's just a very short clip from A Touch of Love, which if anybody's listened to the previous episode of Backlisted on um, the Eustace Diamonds by Anthony Trollope, they will hear a continuity here between that episode <laughs> and this episode. Um, so, Nikki, could we hear that clip, please? Uh, Alan, who are you? Uh, Stacy, Rosamund Stacy. Whatever you're doing here, then? You're supposed to be in Ward D. I'm here because I was put here. You're not supposed to be here. Come on, get up. You're supposed to be in Ward D. Where is Ward D? Then? Come on, get a move on. There'll be trouble if they catch you in here. And bloody hell, can you blame me if one of your colleagues was incompetent enough to put me in the wrong room? No, no. All right, just how do I get there? Oh, how do you think? No. No. Now, admittedly, it's going to be more challenging when we do our episode on Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut to find a clip with Penelope Keith in it. But, uh, <laughs> there, there, but there she was again, as she was in the last episode. There she was again. That was, the, that was Sandy Dennis and the young Penelope Keith in a scene from A Touch of Love with Penelope Keith playing a nurse in the NHS. So this seems like a very good moment for us to take a break and hear this word from our sponsors. Imagine a place of your own, in your name. A place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special home ownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Linda, this book is also a novel about abortion, um, an issue which continues to be an important and divisive one. How does it stand up now, do you think, 60 years later on that topic? It tells you how difficult it was to get an abortion, even if you were middle class. Um, it tells you that a, um, a woman as intelligent as Rosamond still believes the old wives' tale about the uh, hot bath and the bottle of gin, which is, you know, I mean, ri ridiculous. Her friend Lydia, the novelist, who comes and lives with her to look after the baby while she's out at the library, explains that she tried to get an abortion and she went to, a, you know, a Harley Street man. Um, and there was this kind of catch-22. She said, I'm too crazy to have a baby. And he said, well, I think <laughs> you're too crazy to have an abortion. So it's a sort of, you know, catch-22. 
everybody expects that she's going to have the baby adopted. And there's this excruciating scene in the hospital after she's given birth. And they saying, you know, isn't it, don't you think it's a little selfish of you to want to keep this baby when there's, you know, a nice couple, childless couple who could give it a better life than mm. you can? I mean, by the time it was published in 65, the abortion was still completely illegal. The act wasn't passed till 67 and um, abortion wasn't legalized until the following year, 68. But also it was still very difficult for unmarried women to get contraception. She's not on any form of contraception because she's not expected to have sex. (laughs) It's a world in which... Women have no control over their fertility. They just don't. And it's, you know, even with the best will in the world, she can't find a way to end her, to, to terminate her pregnancy. But though she realizes she wants to have a baby, she never quite explains why. She never spells <laughs> out why she wants it. But then she just thinks, well, she does. She does. And she's a wonderful mother and has a wonderful baby. Yeah. Until this heart problem develops. And then she realizes that her whole life has to be taken up with protecting her child. Is the novel really about the relationship between the mother and the baby? Hmm. I was thinking that. I was thinking when I read it this time around as well, it struck me that it is a love story, but it's about yes. it's a love it's a love affair between a mother and a child, and, child. and about her and about Rosamond, I think, falling in love with her child. There are points at which I, I, I didn't actually double check this before the show, but there are bits early on where she talks about the baby as an it. And then by the end, she talks entirely, if I'm remembering correctly, my baby, my baby. Yes. My so, baby. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and that, I, that, that's what really struck me, I think, this time around about how much it is a love story between them. Uh, amazingly moving bit towards the end where she. She says that she, when she prays, you know, she's not having a clear sense really of God, despite her kind of Fabian socialist background. She, she prays, it's, and it's very moving in quotes, sort of Ben Johnson about the, about the death of his, of his child. And I think I, 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 I kind of love that way. She says something wonderful at one point where she says about, I have a vague sense, she said, of, I had a vague and complicated sense that this pregnancy had been sent to me in order to reveal to me a scheme of things totally different than the scheme in which I inhabited, totally removed from academic enthusiasms, social consciousness, etiolated, undefined emotional connections, and the exercise of free will. It's kind of baby as reality principle, connecting being, her to, to her ability, and yeah. also connecting to yeah. ability to love. Yeah, yeah. Well, going back to that documentary, One Pair of Eyes, this is, can you imagine this happening now? Here is Margaret Drabble being quizzed on the, the subject of the millstone by a group of school children in Sheffield. The mind boggles that this would be broadcast now, but here we go. What do you um, think about abortion then? Because in the millstone, the girl doesn't really want an abortion, does she? Now, I myself think that the abortion law reform, the abortion laws were, were archaic and, and wicked and so on and so forth and should have been changed and um, and in, indeed kind of, you know, did what I could to do something about it. But um, this doesn't mean that I myself, I, I, I have a very 
strong religious feeling about unborn children. I mean, and yet I don't feel that one can impose one's own religious, this is really what I mean, one can't impose one's own mystical sense about how marvellous it is to have a child on the mother of nine who, who's about to, you know, risk her life with the tents. You know, I, I think it's wicked to, to impose one's own rather hazy mystical notions about the virtues of, of life on somebody in a position like that. Therefore, if you'd been in her position... Um, would you have done as she had done? I would have done what she did. Yes, certainly I would have done. But, I mean, I wouldn't in any way condemn anybody who didn't. It's just that I think that she did the right thing. I, I think that I, I admire her for, for feeling as she did about it, for feeling that the baby had, she had to have the baby because it was hers. Just for what it's worth, the next child asks uh, if she believes in God, God and if not, where her moral framework comes from. <laughs> you know, but didn't, isn't that fascinating? I think we've heard clips from the beginning of her career and nearer the end of her career. She seems to me someone who is willing to listen and engage totally with her readers. She's fascinating. Her view is the book is about one thing, but she's terribly interested in hearing what her readers believe the book to be about. Yeah, I did a literary festival event with her in Bath a few years ago. I believe the two of you were there. Yeah, um, well, we had dinner with her afterwards. We and did. Um, yeah, I mean, she is in a dialogue with people about her book, she, she, about her work. For an intellectual writer who is perhaps typecast as a kind of Hampstead intellectual, I find her tremendously generous towards her readers. The pluralist reading of her work is very, very generous from um, someone perceived as such a kind of high-table author. Um, on a personal level, I feel very angry that she has been pigeonholed as the novelist of Hampstead's adultery Quite. because I've read most yeah. of her novels. I can't actually think of any that are set in Hampstead. She doesn't write novels about adultery. I think she's been, been maligned, very, very badly maligned over the years. And I'm not sure why that's happened. I mean, it's, it happens to other women. Joni Mitchell, for example, was typecast as a folky, and that kind of really sort of boils my piss. Um, <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that on that backlist. Indeed. I think she's a remarkable novelist who's had a remarkable career, and I think she's written a run of extraordinary books. I mean, I don't love them all equally. I don't know if anyone's work equally in that sense. But yeah. I think she's just so far more than what she has been typecast as being, and I think she always has been. Well, you're an enthusiast for uh, Margaret Drabble's work. Uh, here is a clip from... World Book Club in 2015, where another enthusiast for Margaret's work gets to quiz her. Uh, we've got a caller on the line now, Peter Donnelly, who's calling from York in the north of England. Peter, hi. Am I right that you're an administrator of the Margaret Drabble Appreciation Society on Facebook? Um, that's correct, yes. And you have a question for Ms Drabble. Uh, yes, it was um, about the, the millstone. I heard it dramatised on the radio a few years ago, and I believe it's been televised as well. It's passed, uh, adapted by, by yourself. As far as I know, it is the only one that's ever been adapted for television or radio. And it seems to be one that's reread quite a bit and used as a choice for book clubs. And I just wondered what it was about this particular novel which made it perhaps a more popular choice to be 
reread or revisited when some of the others, which I may prefer, they haven't been used in that way. Thank you. Yes, I think some of the others are better. Um, <laughs> but there is something about the simplicity of the millstone, the universality of the theme, which is easily approached from anywhere, that, that has made it adaptable. And some of the other novels are more complex. I also recommend it to people who haven't read any of my work because it's short and you don't want to send them off to read The Needle's Eye, which I think is my best novel, because it's very long. So The Millstone, if you don't like it, you haven't lost much time on it. And, um, <laughs> and there's that to be said for it. There's something very British about a man from an appreciation society yeah, yeah. popping up to say he doesn't really like the book he's asking her about. <laughs> That's perfect. That's, uh, anyway... Linda, I'm aware we haven't really heard much of Margaret Drabble's prose. If you've got a section that you would care to yeah. read us. Um, this is the beginning of the book when she's trying to have her bathtub abortion and her friends turn up. And they're all kind of literary types. And <laughs> uh, she has a great friend called Lydia, who is a um, wannabe debut novelist. Lydia was the only one who had read... Oh, no, she's... Sorry, she's... She's not a wannabe debut novelist. She's a novelist. Yeah. Lydia is a novelist. Lydia was the only one who had really made it. She had published a couple of novels, but had now for some time been mooching around London, learning that she had nothing else to say. Nobody sympathised with her at all, understandably. She was only 26, so what did she have to worry about? In view of her state, she sees with delight upon any stories of the atrocities of other people's latest <laughs> books, of which we managed to offer a kindly few. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's no good anyway, said Dick, after dismissing Joe Hurt's latest with a derisive sneer, churning them out like that one a year. Mechanical, that's what it is. A bit more mechanism wouldn't hurt you, I said gaily. I was on my second large gin. <laughs> Lydia, who had hitherto been accepting our devious comfort, suddenly turned on us with a wail of despondency. I don't care what you say, she said. It's better to write bad books than no books. It really is. Mm. Writing nothing is, is nothing, just nothing. Mm. It's wonderful to turn out one a year. I think Joe Hurt is wonderful. I admire it. I admire that kind of thing. You haven't read it, said Dick. That's not the point, said Lydia. It's the effort, that's the point. Why don't you write a bad book then, I asked. I bet you could write a bad book if you wanted to, couldn't you? Not if I knew it was bad when I was writing it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't get it done. What a romantic view of literary creation, said Dick. Speak for yourself, said Lydia crossly. Get yours published and then start calling me romantic. Pass the gin, Rosie, there's a darling. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. I mean, it's great prose. It really is. As you say, Linda, so of its time as well, right? The idea that, you know, what you did in the evening, if you were in, in London, you went to see a Fellini, Fellini film. Fellini film. Fellini talk, film talked right? about books. On Regent Street, on the Cameo Polly, yeah. Cameo Polly. Um, I wouldn't yeah. say it wasn't true that writers don't sit around dissing each other's books, <laughs> <laughs> which they haven't read. My favourite comic scene in this novel, other than the great those early scenes, is is the discovery that Lydia has been writing a novel and it turns out that Lydia's novel is about Rosamond. 
and Rosamond finds it and reads it with a mounting... At first, she thinks she comes out quite well from it. And then she starts... Uh, Lydia, obviously, is sort of very dismissive about the scholarship that she's doing, which <laughs> Rosamond is extremely proud of and remains proud of all the way through the book. So she gets cross with it, and then it disappears like a kind of, you know, in MacGuffin-like way into the book. And then it reappears brilliantly when Octavia, the, 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 who's now a toddler, sneaks into the... into. Lydia's bedroom and, and eats half the novel. She finds it in a kind of, you know, kind of masticated mess all over the floor. It's just a very, very, very funny scene and a kind of brilliant symbolic scene about life's revenge on art. Well, speaking of life's revenge on art, I've got the review here from the Times newspaper um, when The Millstone was first published. Um, I have to say, um, I'd love to get your reaction to this. Um, the, it's an anonymous reviewer, as was the tradition in that time. And um, it's also worth saying that many of the other reviews of the Millstone were very, very good. But this, perhaps not so much. And I'm sharing this with you um, because, in a sense, I think it was, it's indicative of what Margaret Drabble and writers like Margaret Drabble were up against. So this is reviewed, the Millstone is reviewed alongside other novels, including John Wayne's The Young Visitors and P.H. Newby's One of the Founders. And uh, this is what the Times reviewer says. As a constant which always seems variable, the immorality of the young is a good subject for a novel, and three of the five novels under review deal with it. Miss Drabble, in her admirably written third novel, The Millstone, has created a self-righteous, unmarried mother called Rosamond. This heroine tells her own story in a disciplined stream-of-consciousness style, of how she conceives from her first and only sexual experience, determines to have the baby, and goes through the machinery of the welfare state to do so. The character of this young feminist is plausible enough. She is the daughter of academic socialist parents whose luxurious Marylebone flat she shamefacedly lives in. Her language has the traces of pedantry, which would be typical of a thesis-writing girl just down from university. Her judgments and descriptions are suffused with the class consciousness of the would-be classless socialist middle class, there are several excellent scenes of middle-class life. However, there is a disappointing lack of thought behind the theme. Miss Drabble's concern is really only for what the neighbours will think, and her moral stand is how fine it is to defy them. She never goes beyond the limits of careful realism. There is no consideration of what life will be like for the fatherless child, no ethical evaluation of Rosamond's purposeful avoidance of marriage, no explanation for the inadequacy of all the male characters. Therefore, though well-written, the millstone is no more than a special kind of woman's novel. Ooh. That's so harsh. Yeah. I'll tell you what that reminded me of, how uh, contemporary critics of Sally Rooney treat her work. <laughs> so, Lucy, would it be accurate to describe Margaret Drabble as the Sally Rooney of her day? <laughs> I think what's so strange about that, though, is that the, well, to me anyway, the idea that Rosamond, to me, is a very moral. She's, yeah. a, she's a character who's incredibly worried about the sort of morality of what she's doing. Um, I guess just her morals are not the same as the reviewer's morals in that sense. And I suppose that's what she's up against throughout the whole book, isn't it? That other people think she's doing this terrible thing in bringing a baby into the world and they won't have a father. Um, and she says, well, that doesn't matter. You know, I love this baby. The baby's mine. And that's all that counts. 
like, I don't know, it's a very dainty. Yeah. And it reminds me so much of that clip we played at the beginning, the way that even you know, drab yeah. was being talked about, yeah. right? That how dare you think that you can have a career alongside Absolutely. having a baby? It's such a, you know, and she, and I love, I, I don't think we maybe mentioned this specifically, but I love in that first clip from Drabble how unapologetic she yeah. is. I love that about it, that she doesn't, she says, yes, of course, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm always going to feel bad, but she doesn't make any apologies. She doesn't try and kind of say, I should be ashamed for doing this. There's no she's, shame. She's she's gr brilliantly ingenuous in how she answers questions yes. all through her career, right? You've heard different points, different people, mm. school children, men, and people on Facebook asking her mm -hmm. questions, and she just takes them straight on. Yeah. She deals with them straightforwardly. Linda, a special kind of woman's novel. <laughs> um, it's it's a style of literary criticism or reviewing that we don't really have anymore, which is yeah. making moral comments on the content. And he says, I think, I'm assuming it's a man, they say twice it's very well written, which is what I would have un underlined and taken away from that <laughs> if I had and been inserted on the paperback jacket. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I think reviews of um, Great Gatsby were like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's the sixties equivalent of I didn't find the characters likable. <laughs> <laughs> Relatable, but not relatable because yes. I am not a young woman. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, Lucy, would you? Take us out with a reading from the millstone, please. Yes, of course. I'm going to read a section from when she's in the hospital um, for one of her uh, was it antenatal appointments. Is that? Yeah. I'm yeah, getting yeah. it right? Yeah. Okay. I wonder if I had the right word. Um, so she's in the Has the baby been born? No. Then so antenatal. It's antenatal, is isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Showing my lack of understanding of this. So, yes. <laughs> As you might have guessed, I haven't had a baby in my own. Uh, <laughs> no idea. She's in the hospital. She hasn't had the baby. She's having an appointment to check yeah. the baby's okay. Okay. They all had one thing in common, of course, though their conditions varied from the invisible to the grossly inflated. As at the doctors, I was reduced almost to tears by the variety of human misery that presented itself. Perhaps I was in no mood for finding people cheering, attractive, or encouraging. But the truth is, they look to me an unbelievably depressed, miserable lot. One hears much, though mostly from the interested male, about the beauty of a woman with child, ships in full sail, and all that kind of metaphorical euphemism. And I suppose that from time to time on the faces of the well-fed, well-bred young ladies that I had seen a certain peaceful glow, but the weight of evidence is overwhelmingly on the other side. Anemia and exhaustion were written on most of the countenances. The clothes were dreadful, the legs swollen, the bodies heavy and unbalanced. There were a few cases of striking wear. A huge middle-aged woman who could walk only with a stick. A pale, thin creature with varicose veins and a two-year-old child in tow. And a black woman who sat there, not with the peasant acceptance of physical life of which one hears, but with a look of wide-eyed, dilating terror. She was moaning to herself softly and muttering, almost as though she were already in labour. Perhaps, like me, she was more frightened of the hospital than of anything else. Even those who had no evident complaints and who might well have been expected to be full of conventional joy were looking cross and tired, possibly at the prospect of having such a tedious afternoon. There were a couple of young girls in the row in front of me, the kind of girls who chatter and giggle on buses and in cafes, but they were not giggling. They were complaining at great lengths about how their backs ached and how they felt sick and how they felt they'd never get their figures back. It seemed a shame, and there we all were, and it struck me that I felt nothing in common with any of these people, though I disliked the look of them, 
that I felt a stranger and a foreigner there, and yet I was one of them. I was like that too. I was trapped in a human limit for the first time in my life, and I was going to have to learn how to live inside it. Fabulous. That is, that's Thank you brilliant, so much. Brilliant passage. And I'm afraid that is where we have to leave the not-so-mean streets of 60s London. Huge thanks to Linda and Lucy for leading us through the Drabble lands, and to Nikki for making the sounds of our remote quartet feel bedsit close. If you would like show notes with clips, links and suggestions for further reading for this show and the 189 that we've already recorded, please visit our website at batlisted.fm. And if you'd like to know what we've been reading this week, you can hear that on Locklisted, which is available via our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash batlisted. If you would like to buy the books discussed, visit our shop at bookshop.org and choose Batlisted as your bookshop. And we're always keen to hear from you on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, yes, your Patreon subscription, uh, mentioning that, picking that up again from Andy, brings you other benefits. <laughs> Indeed, if you subscribe at the lot listener level for about the same amount as a bottle of gin from Rosamond's local Unwinds, you get two extra exclusive podcasts every month. We call it Lot Listed because it began in the Wenlock Tavern just before lockdown. And it features the three of us talking and recommending the books we've been reading and films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. People who have subscribed at this level also get their names read out on the podcast, accompanied by lashings of genuine thanks and gratitude. So here we go. Thank you to Andy Sharman, a marvellous writer. Thank you, Andy. Thank you to Cohen Cuggle. Thank you to Deborah de Biase. Thank you to Jeff Johnson. And thank you to Rui Silva. Thank you, Gretchen Moline. Thank you, Stefan Scarup. Thank you, Helene Hewitt. Thank you, P. Cabredo Hofher. Thank you, Phoebe. Thanks, all of you. Thank you so much. Now, before we go, Lucy, is there anything you wish to add on the topic of Margaret Drabble and or the millstone that we have not covered? Where do I begin? No, only joking. I think the only thing... (laughs) 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 The only thing I would say that we didn't have the chance to discuss is just how interesting a career she had when she starts out writing these um, these early novels are very interested in sort of individual female experience. And then as she goes and becomes clearly kind of more established and, and uh, I think aware of her own voice, she branches out and by the sort of late 70s and into the 80s, mm. she's writing these kind of very, very kind of big uh, condition of England novels, which are hugely important. And I think that's something that you know, people like to maybe dismiss her earlier work as sort of that, whatever the quote was from the review about a particular kind of woman's story, but she's really not doing that throughout her career. And I think that in itself is a fascinating transition as well. Yes, I feel like there's a whole um, oeuvre to explore with mm. with Margaret Drabble. And um, Linda, as you were saying, you know, she's sort of been rather typecast over the last however many years, but in fact, her, the range of her work is, is pretty incredible. I think it's also interesting that um, all her novels, as far, as far as I can remember, are all contemporary. They're all set in the present. She doesn't write historical novels. She doesn't run out of things to say. She always has something to say. And unlike Lucy, I really liked her final novel because, it, you know, she's 10 years ahead of me in terms of ageing. Um, and she deals with death, and it's extraordinary. I think it's an extraordinary book. I can understand why somebody of your age wouldn't relate to it, perhaps. <laughs> um, but I really did. I'm ordering it now. 
Well, listen, thanks so much, both of you. Thank you. This is, I, I, um, I'd read The Millstone before, but going back to it, what I found so interesting is, as you were both saying, this seemingly quite slim novel manages to contain so many readings within it. I had a very different experience on second reading than I had on the first reading. And, um, and I also, we haven't talked about it much, but I thoroughly enjoyed the film adaptation, mm. A Touch of Love. If you want a bit of late 60s, post-Cathy-come-home kitchen sink, um, uh, it's, it, it fulfills that brief tremendously eloquently. Also has some lovely shots of the old reading room at the British Library too. Johnny? I really, really loved this book um, in a way that I wasn't quite expecting to. I just wanted this one sentence that sums up to me its sort of strange kind of intelligence. Uh, that review couldn't have been wrong. I think there's a really, really interesting moral intelligence at work in this book. But she says, very early on, Rosamond, the character, says, I did not realise the dreadful facts of life. I did not know that a pattern forms before we are aware of it and that what we think we make becomes a rigid prison making us. It's just, it's good. Um, that's, you know, one for the notebook. Amazing book. Well, thanks for giving us the feel-good ending we needed <laughs> at the end. <laughs> oh, well, I could do, I could do uh, one sorry, that's thanks, funny. Thanks, ma'am. I could do one that's funny. No, go on, give I, us another one. Go uh, on. This, I thought, this is for backlisted fans. They'll love this. She says, I do not care very much for plots myself but I do like hey. to have a sequence of events. <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 I'm not. I don't approve of that. No, no, no. Well, listen, thanks, Linda. Thanks, Lucy, and thanks, everybody. Thank we'll, you. Uh, we'll see you next we'll time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.